Chapter 10, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 10, Part 2 Manufactures. There are many other industries which claim by their importance some mention here, but lest details should become tiresome to the reader, there is appended in tabular form a few particulars of the most important industries hereto unnamed. But even the most conscientious reader is hereby specially permitted and advised to skip this table. The author did not make it, you know, and he is only solicitous for the text. Manufactured Leather Curring Establishments, 2,319. Capital, 16,870,520. Hands, 11,053. Wages, 1,845,413. Value of product, 71,351,297. Tanning, 3,105 establishments. 50,222,054. Capital, 23,821. Hands. 9,204,243 wages, 113,348,336 value, manufacture, shipbuilding, 2,188 establishments, 20,979,874 capital, 21,045 hands, 12,713,830 in wages, 36,800,327 in value, Paper, 692 establishments, 46,421,202 in capital, 24,422 hands, 8,525,355 in wages, 55,109,114 in value. Glass, 211 establishments, 19,844,699 in capital. 24,177 hands, $9,144,100 in wages, $21,154,571 in value. Dying and finishing, 191 establishments, $26,223,981 in capital, no data for hands, no data for wages, $32,297,420 in value. Sugar and molasses, no data other than value for 155,484,915. Printing and publishing. No data except for value at 90,799,442. Agricultural implements. No data except for value at $68,640,486. Furniture. No data except for value. $68,037,902. Carriages and wagons. No data except for value. $64,951,617. Drugs and chemicals. No data except for value. $38,173,658. Clothing. Men's. Ready made. No data except for value. $209,548,460. Clothing, women's, ready-made, no data except for value at $32,004,794. Railroad and streetcars, 
no data except for value at $27,997,591. Hardware, no data except for value, $22,653,693. Sewing machines, no data except for value, $13,863,188. In this table, the two items which will probably most excite surprise are those which seem to tell us that the sober-suited male spends six times as much for his clothes as the more gaudily dressed branch of the race. The explanation of this is found in the enormous development of ready-made clothing in the country. Let anyone stop for a moment at the windows of one of these establishments, which generally occupy entire squares in most of the cities, and notice at what extremely low prices quite respectable clothing is offered, and if he be a British visitor, few sights will more surprise him. Prices are not above those in Britain, and the clothing is better made. The material may however not be quite so good, for a mixture of inferior stuff is suspected in the home product. Still, it is excellent and serviceable, and is constantly improving in quality. There is seen in this branch another development of the wholesale idea, which gives America its good and cheap watches and many other things. In the manufacture of men's clothing, men are divided into classes, and a thousand suits are cut and sewed by machinery for each class from the same material. Only the misshapen man is now compelled to be measured and fitted by himself. The garments adopted for boys' wear offered by these wholesale manufacturers are so much more bright in style and so much cheaper than can be obtained from smaller tailors that this branch may be said to be entirely monopolized by the manufacturers. Prices are lower than those prevailing in Britain for similar garments. Not only the working classes, but all except the few rich, are fast becoming patrons of these ready-made establishments which, it may be mentioned, do a strictly cash business. This in itself is one reason for the lower prices, and it exerts a decided influence for good upon the habits of the poorer people. Here again we have that low concentration which seems inseparable from manufacturing, the smaller being constantly merged into the greater factories. When we come to the dress of delightful, vain woman, however, we have a total arrest of this concentration. Her tastes or whims are so numerous, so diverse, that she must express herself in her dress, and sometimes very loudly too. Still, in this, we can at least ask the world to judge between the monarchy and the democracy without fear of the verdict. The American woman of all classes sets an example to her monarchical sister in dress. The full-blown wife of the local magnate from the provinces, decked out in all the colors of the rainbow, and apparently with a ram road down her back, which extends high through her neck too, and probably divides into two prongs midway, one going down each leg to her feet. That spectacle has no compare upon this side of the water. Even the wife of the California miner who has made his pile, or of the Pennsylvania speculator who has struck oil, seems to submit herself to a tolerable dressmaker before she appears in public in New York or Washington. Still, there is no possibility of success if the attempt were made to manufacture a thousand bonnets or dresses of any one pattern. That any other woman had one of these would render the next hideous, positively offensive to the aesthetic sense of the second purchaser. The guarantee required by the purchaser of a fashionable bonnet, apparently, is that it can be worshipped without breaking the commandment. There must be nothing like it in the heavens above, nor in the earth beneath, nor in the waters under the earth. And in many cases, there is not. 
For this reason, if there be a reason at all, we find the census reporting that men spend six times the sum that women do upon clothing. Were the receipts known, a reporter of the thousands of small retail dressmakers who supply the principal parts of the women's dress, we should no doubt find these figures more than reversed. The power used in manufactures in the United States is equal to 3,410,837 horsepower, a force capable of rising a weight of 17 billion tons, one foot high. Of this force, 64% is steam power and 36% water power. The increase of tunnel power between 1870 and 1880 was 45%. In the same time, the increase in product of manufacturers was 58% another sign of improved machinery. The increase of power per hand in all branches of manufacture amounted to 10%, which indicates the extent of the transfer from manual to mechanical power during that period. The transfer is still going on, and man is ever getting nature to work more and more for him. A hundred years ago, she did little but grow his corn, meat, and wool. Now, she cuts the corn, gathers, binds, threshes, grinds, bakes it into bread, and carries it to his door. The wool she spins, weaves, and sews into garments, and then stops not until she has placed it within the future wearer's reach, be he ever so far away, or she will carry him wheresoever his lordly desire may lead him. Across continents and under seas she flies with his messages. Ever obedient, ever untiring, ever ready, she grows more responsive and willing in proportion as her lord makes more demands upon her. Already she has taken to herself the drudgery which longed burdened man, and under triumphant democracy she is ever seizing on other work to relieve him and live his life freer for happiness. In other lands, men are not so happy. Instead of making conquests over nature, they strive for conquests over each other incited thereto by selfish and conceited kings and self-styled noblemen. But the end is near. It is probable that it is by an industrial conquest, feudalism, and standing armies in Europe are to be overcome, and that has already begun. America, blessed land of peace, is inundating the world not only with her products, but with her gospel of the equality of man as man, and the all-time nations will soon be forced to divert their energies from war to peaceful work. The position America has acquired not only as a manufacturer of the coaster products, but of more artistic articles, is remarkable. In all articles of silverware, for instance, no nation competes successfully with her. A New York establishment, which dwarfs all other similar establishments in the world, carried off the gold medal for artistic work in silver at the Paris Exhibition of 1855 and also of 1878, also the gold medal from the Emperor of Russia, 20% of all its enormous manufacture of silverware is now sold abroad. In this branch, as in engraving, the Republican workman has achieved preeminence. This is but the beginning of his triumphs in the higher branches of art. Others are as certain to follow as the sun is to shine, for the manhood and intelligence of the workman, his position of equality in the state must find expression in his work. We have an interesting example of Republican success in another branch of manufacture, that of watches. It is not very long since every watch carried by the American was imported. Today, America exports watches largely to most foreign countries and especially to Europe. These indispensable articles were formerly made by hand in small factories. Switzerland, the land of cheap labor, was the principal seat of the manufacture. 
35 years ago, the American conceived the idea of making watches by machinery upon a gigantic scale. The principal establishment made only five watches per day as late as 1854. Now, 1,300 per day is the daily task, and 6,000 watches per month are sent to the London agency. Three other similar establishments, conducted upon the same general plan, are kept busily employed. In short, the Republic is now the world's watchmaker. Notwithstanding the fact that labor is paid more than double that of Europe, the immense product, the superior skill of the workmen, and the numerous American inventions connected with the business enable the Republican to outstrip all his rivals. It will soon be so in all articles, which can be made of one pattern in great numbers, for in such cases the enormous home market of the American takes so much more of any article than the home market of any other manufacturer that he is enabled to carry on the business upon a gigantic scale and dispose of his surplus abroad. In confirmation of this, now let us take the manufacture of thread for which the two Scotch firms at Paisley, Scotland, are so justly celebrated the world over. The pioneer firm began operations in Paisley in 1798, the other followed in 1820. They began to manufacture in the United States in 1866 and 1869, not 20 years ago. Yet their combined capital and works upon this side already about equals their capital in Paisley, the product of 60 years' growth. In other words, 20 years in the Republic has equaled 60 in Scotland. In 20 years more, Clark and Coates will, in all probability, consider the original home works in their old monarchical Paisley as but a branch of the main stem in the Great Republic. Another illustration of the same character is seen in the manufacture of pig iron. The writer well remembers raising a laugh not twenty years ago at the table of one of the Scotch Iron Kings, the Bairds, by prophesying that even their enormous product would soon be reached by a manufacturing concern in America. Where would the laugh be now? The Bairds do not produce nearly as much today as the American concern, and next year the difference in favor of the Republican manufacturer would be much greater, as their capacity is constantly being increased to meet the swelling demands of the new country. So it is in every branch of manufacture, so rapidly is the child land dwarfing her illustrious mother. One has only to have faith in the Republic. She never yet betrayed the head that trusted or the heart that loved her. In Mr. Pigeon's clever book, All World Questions of New World Answers, which is, upon the whole, the best book of its kind that I know of, we find the author unerringly placing his finger upon the one secret of the Republic's success, viz., the respect in which labor is held. If I wish to indicate one of the sharpest contrasts between men and the world, and few will deny my right to judge here, I should say that which exists between the artisan and monarchical Britain and Republican America. I echo every word Mr. Pigeon says. Gloss it over as we may, there is a great gulf fixed between the ideas of old and new England in this radical question of the dignity of work. Our industrial occupations consist, speaking generally, of mere money spinning. The places where, and the people by whom we carry them on, are cared for economically, and that is all. It is not in our business, but by our position, that we shine in the eyes of ourselves and our neighbors. The social code of this country drives, dearly, numbers of young men, issuing from our public schools and universities either into the overcrowded learned professions or into government clerkships whose narrow round of irresponsible duties benumbs originality and weakens self-reliance. Capable, educated girls 
are pining for a career in England, while posts, even the most important, are filled in New England by young ladies, the equals of ours in everything which that phrase denotes, and their superiors in all the qualities that are born of effort and self-help. It is no one's fault, and I am not going to rail at the inevitable. We were originally a feudal country, and cannot escape the influence of our traditions. The man who does service for another was a villain in the feudal times, and is an inferior now, just as a man of no occupation is a gentleman, and a governess a person. Use has made us unconscious of the fact that the dignity of work is a mere phrase in our mouths, while it blinds us to the loss of national energy, which avenges outraged labor. Let us look to it, while the battle of free trade rages across the Atlantic, as rage it soon will, that we import some American readiness and grip into our war rooms and offices some sense of the dignity of labor into our workshops. This writer truthfully gives the facts, but into the causes of this sense of the dignity of labor in the Republic and its absence in the monarchy he has not ventured to seek. Let me supply this lack. If you found a state upon the monarchical idea which necessarily carries with it an aristocracy by so much more as you exalt this loyal family and aristocracy you inevitably degrade all who are not of these classes. That is clear. If at the pinnacle of your place people who are exempt from honest labor for recompense, whether such a state labor be such as that rendered by ministers, physicians, lawyers, teachers, or other professional men, or tradesmen, or mechanics, if you create a court from which people in trade or artisans are excluded, if you support a monarch who declines to have one in trade represented to her even at the state reception, those entailing upon honest labor the grossest insult, what can be the result of the system but a community in which dignity of labor has not only no place, but one in which, as in Britain, labor is actually looked down upon. This is the very essence of the monarchical idea. The Queen of Great Britain grossly insults labor every moment of her life by declining to recognize it. And all her entourage, from the Duke who walks backwards before the Lord's anointed for 4,000 a year, down or up to the groom of the stall, whatever that may be, necessarily cherish the same contempt for those who lead useful lives of labor. Mr. Pigeon would cure this evil of his country by giving a better education to the people. So far, so good, but until these educated people goes to the root of the evil and sweeps away the pressing foundation upon which their government rests and founds in its place a government resting upon the equality of the citizen, he might legislate from June to January, year after year, and labor will still hold no honored place in the state. How can it ever be even respected so long as a monarch and a court despise and insult it? Nature rejects the monarch, not the man, the subject, not the citizen, for kings, and subjects, mutual foes, forever play, a losing game into each other's hand, whose stakes are vice and misery. Never will the British artisan rival the American, until from his system are expelled the remains of serfdom, and into his veins is instilled the pure blood of exalted manhood. Ah, Mr. Pigeon, you should know that before you can have an intelligent, self-respecting, inventive artisan like the American, the estate must first make him a man. Of course, we hear the response to all this from the ostrich class. Britons have done pretty well, have they not? So far, they have managed not only to hold their own in the world, but to successfully invade many provinces naturally belonging to others. Have not the British race come out ahead? Granted, 
And why? Because until recently, they have had as competing races less free men and therefore less men than themselves. Compare a Briton and his political liberties with a German, or with any continental race, and the law I indicate receives confirmation. The freer the citizen, the grander the national triumphs. Who questions that the overthrow of the doctrine of the divine right of kings and the supreme authority of parliament have not exerted a powerful influence upon the national character? And when a new race appears which enjoys political equality, shall the law not hold good, and the price fall for the freest, and therefore to the best man? And this is precisely what is going on before our eyes. Will any competent judge of the two countries upon this vital point dispute the immense superiority of the Republican workmen? Will not Mr. Howard of Bedford, for instance, or Mr. Lothian Bell, or Mr. Windsor Richards, or Mr. Edward Martin, all of whom have investigated the subject, will they not tell their fellow countrymen, as I tell them, and as Mr. Pigeon tells them, that the citizen leads this subject? The theory of the equal status of the working man in the state here lies at the root of his superiority, both as a citizen and as a skilled workman. We find that in handling a shovel, which few Native Americans do, the British man in his cool climate can do more work than his fellow countrymen can do, or at least than he does here. But when we come to educated skilled labor, the average Briton is not in the race. Nor will he be until he is too subject to no man, but the proud citizen of a commonwealth founded upon political equality. The stuff is in him, but the laws of his country stifle it at his birth, and prevent its proper development all the years of his life. The struggle for existence has already begun afresh, this time other weapons than the spear and sword. European nations must rid themselves of the weight they now carry if they would not fall further and further behind in the race. The people must first take their political rights and secure perfect equality under the laws. This obtained, the rest is easy, for the people of all countries are pacific and bear nothing but goodwill to each other. Where ill will has grown, it is the work of hereditary rulers and military classes not responsible to the masses. From the jealousies and personal ambitions of these, the people are happily free, and hence, from their advent to power, there must come a rapid diversion of force from international war into the peaceful channels of industrial development. The reign of the democracy means ultimately no less than the reign of peace on earth among men goodwill. End of chapter 10